Hello, and welcome to The Roundtable, a Next Generation Politics podcast. Next Generation Politics is a cross-partisan nonprofit building a movement of young people committed to building bridges across various divides. I'm Sarah Cho, and at this week's Roundtable, Ria Mehta and I spoke with Blanca Andre and Rachel Kastner, co-founders of 1510, which is committed to making millennials and Gen Zers the political powerhouse we can be by empowering our generation with information on progressive campaigns and encouraging and equipping activists to become donors. With Gen Z and Millennials comprising 37% of the electorate, 1510 is committed to helping the nearly 100 million members of our generation create a tidal wave of campaign finance reform. You'll learn how and be inspired by their vision in this episode. Thanks for joining us. Hi, my name is Ria. I'm a rising freshman at Tufts University, and I'm really interested in bipartisanship and um, engaging people in civic discourse. Hi, my name is Sarah Cho. I'm a rising freshman at Columbia University, and I'm particularly passionate about topics of immigration as well as civic engagement among youth uh, and bipartisan conversation. That's awesome, Sarah. Both Rachel and I went to Columbia and graduated a year ago. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to either of us. I'm Blanca. I started One Five Time with Rachel um, almost a year ago now, which is crazy to us. Um, I work in campaign finance, which is kind of how this all started. I worked for Senator Gillibrand on her presidential and then Mayor Keith, and now I'm working for another candidate um, starting very soon, which is exciting. Basically, I just, um, what I do is I help raise money and deal with the laws that come with that and how we do that and interacting with donors. Most of what I do is dealing with larger sums. but that kind of seemed like a bit of a problem to me and to Rachel. And so we decided to try to get people our age activated. And that's how we're here. Hi, I'm Rachel Kastner and co-founded One Five Ten with Blanca. I am originally from New York, but right now I work in Tel Aviv. Um, I come from a storytelling and film and documentary background. Um, and have worked in film, television, and podcasts, and storytelling, and branding, and nothing to do with politics, but I have always considered myself personally very politically active um, and politically engaged, until I realized that I wasn't donating to campaigns and started questioning that, especially when my best friend um, and roommate worked in campaign finance, um, which led us to our first discussions that eventually uh, born 1510. The whole basis of 1510 is that we are a part of a very large generation, two-block generation, technically. Rachel and I are on the cusp of millennials and Gen Z, so we're kind of targeting both because we think that it's young people in general who really are left out of this. Um, In total, there are 73 million millennials in the United States and 65 million Gen Zers, 24 million of them can already vote. That's 138 million people. And it's 1510 is ultimately based on the idea of collective action. In general, we see that millennials and Gen Zers do trend ideologically on specific issues very much. And if we can each chip in what we can, $1, $5, $10, whatever, to support the candidates that really share the vision we have for our country, we can make the same impact as those larger donors. And we don't need to have that capacity to do it. So that's the basis of 1510 as an idea. And also that when you get young people to give, they're gonna do things. When you are invested, you're gonna act, you're gonna vote, you're gonna care, you're gonna pay attention. 
And we saw this. We saw this with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. They funded these massive national campaigns on low dollar, primarily on low dollar donations. And I can even say with Mayor Pete's campaign, towards the end, the majority of our money was low dollar. So it's you can have a real impact. We just need to get young people to know about these other races, these other candidates down ballot in states that aren't near them who can make this huge difference. Um, and that's what we do with our newsletter. We try to profile candidates based off of how consequential we think their races really are, big picture, young people, what, how much they agree with them. And also just kind of, I mean, sometimes there are candidates who we just think are really inspiring and get to the issue we're pointing at. We highlighted Keita Haynes in the Tennessee fifth a few weeks back not a very well-known candidate, hasn't raised a ton of money. She's amazing. Fantastic woman, incredible story. So skilled, she's an attorney, she was incarcerated. I mean, it's, especially in this moment when we're talking about racial disparities with treatment with criminal in our criminal justice system, she's incredibly relevant. And she's running against a Democratic incumbent who takes corporate PAC money. That means he takes money from companies more than that, he sits on the on the House Armed Services Committee and takes money from the companies that make the weapons that we use in war. So these are things that like when young people hear that, they're like, oh my God, how is that happening? How is a Democrat like that? That's not great. We have to give this lady money. Um, so that's that's what we do. We send a newsletter. We have our building our social media slowly and surely. Um, and we're trying to just get the message out about candidates that matter to young people and ask them, hey, do it, give a dollar. Give a dollar to this person if you like them. Give $5, give $10. One Five Ten started in a conversation in September. Blanca and I were sitting, um, I was producing podcasts for clients like Spotify and the New York Times at the time. And it was an interesting time in New York um, during the the height of many, many candidates um, still in the race. And Blanca was working on Kirsten Gillibrand's campaign back, back, back when the, the field was very, very crowded with candidates. And Blanca was working as a finance associate. And we often, we're both passionate. We became very close friends because we're both passionate about a lot of um, similar things, including being politically active, um, in, in, engaging in politics, being interested in being active members of our society. And we always would talk about Blanca's work because I was fascinated by it. Um, and because I knew so little about campaign finance, about donors, and it felt so foreign to me. Um, and basically we were sitting talking about how the highest dollar donors in her campaign weren't even giving that much. Like it wasn't even, it wasn't the numbers that I thought in my head, even though I knew that there was, um, there was a limit to what people could give. The word donor just feels scary as a millennial because I'm a recent grad. I don't make that much money. I don't, I don't have thousands of dollars to give to campaigns. Um, and I realized that the only candidate that I had in memory, um, in recent memory given in a given money to a campaign was Hillary's campaign in 2016. And Blanca and I started talking about that and how, how, how that's a problem. If somebody like me who considers themselves very politically active and engaged and knows about candidates and, and reads a lot um, and talks to their friends about policy um, and about candidates and elections happening across the country, if I'm not giving, then I, I don't know how many millennials are giving. Um, and then when we started looking up how many millennials there are, um, we realized that there was a huge untapped potential and there are so many millennials that consider themselves politically active, but if they want their, their voices to be heard, they have to get their candidates 
on the ballot and then into office. And one of the major ways to do that is to donate. And we started thinking about the word donor and why, why don't millennials feel a connection to that? And being a donor doesn't have to be a high dollar donor. That's, that's one of the main messages that we're pushing out is that giving one, five or $10 actually can make a difference for all these local candidates who are paying field organizers and people to knock on doors and to put things into, to put letters into mailboxes. Um, they need to be paid and they're not being paid huge, huge salaries. They're being paid they're being paid per hour and your one, five or $10 actually makes a difference. Um, so that's, that was our first thought. And our second thought was that people don't know about the, the local candidates that are, that are across the country. They, they, even if they're politically active, they're also working, right? Millennials are in college, they're working really hard, they don't have time, or they're just starting their first jobs and they're working long hours and they don't have time to go out maybe and research what are the most flippable seats um, right now and who should I be donating? Um, so we realized that it was a problem both of not connecting to the word donor and not feeling like their money can make a difference, but also just want, just needing the resource of the actual, the, the people who they should be, they wanna be fed, it's kind of spoon feeding, the, the information that, that they want, hopefully. Um, and that's why our newsletter is actually two parts. Not only do we highlight the candidate and talk about their personal life and their accomplishments and their um, political background and their policy, but we also talk about their finances so far. Um, so we give them a snapshot of how much they've raised, how much their um, whoever they're running against has raised, um, and also, how what's what's the average um contribution um which is super surprising sometimes and actually makes you feel like oh if like a contribution is less if most of contributions are less than 200 dollars if i don't donate 10 dollars that that's a real donation uh, so that's that's kind of how we set up the newsletter and so far every time we sent out a newsletter people have been donating and those are people who wouldn't have donated otherwise um, and our list is growing and we're we're just really really excited about where this can go I think that mission is so incredible and so important. And I guess like something that like I was kind of curious about was what are the metrics and avenues in which you decide what candidates to highlight? And you know, like um, how do you decide like what aligns with like Gen Z or millennials? We choose based mostly on which races matter the most because we go into it assuming that our readers don't know what an insider might consider an obvious Democratic candidate to give to. For example, our first newsletter was Sarah Gideon. And when we told an insider, a political insider that, she was like, everyone knows who Sarah Gideon is. Do you know who Sarah Gideon is? No idea. Okay, exactly. Sarah Gideon is running in Maine against Susan Collins and is one of the most important races to flip the Senate. Susan Collins also voted for Brett Kavanaugh. That's kind of our foundation. We base it off of, can we make your $1 go as far as possible, basically? Because like Rachel said, we're young, we're broke. So we want you to have the impact you can. Um, and then the other metric is, and that's a good point, like millennials have different values. They, they're not a monolith, totally, you're right. But um, there are certain general things that we know millennials care about. We know millennials in general care about the environment. We know most millennials are um, for reproductive rights, reproductive freedom, LGBTQ rights, things like that. 
And so that's our emphasis. It's not every millennial, it's a majority. It's what trends, it's progressive values that we see our generation in general cares about. Millennials are marching in the streets right now because of racial justice. So we try to, it's very much a trend thing. We're not saying every millennial is progressive. We're not saying every millennial agrees with us. We're not even saying that most millennials agree with every single thing we say. But we're saying that in general, we've seen that our generation does have specific viewpoints and we try to choose candidates who align with that. We pick candidates who, while they're new to you and while they're new to all of our, most of our readers, they're not new. Sarah Gideon is not a new entity. She's a known entity. We're not telling you a random person. She has been vetted. She's endorsed by Emily's List and countless other casts. She's very much legit. She is the speaker in the main house of representatives. So we're not, we're steering our readers towards candidates who we know are in their best interests. Kind of going off of this conversation and uh, Ria's previous question, I was just wondering how much you guys interact with sort of your audience in terms of maybe surveying them, seeing where their viewpoints really lie or kind of just uh, in terms of getting their feedback after the newsletter sent out. I'm just wondering how much you interact with actual, you know, Gen Z and millennial so far, so we've just been growing our list in September. We've gotten feedback um, after almost every single newsletter. People reach out to us. They're like, this was my favorite, or this one could use more information, or I've never heard of this candidate before donating right now. Um, and once we have, we have a benchmark for um, a certain number of um, people on our list. Once we get to that point, we're going to um, actually go back and do a full survey. Absolutely. Um, but most of what we've been seeing is, wow, I didn't know this candidate existed. I want to donate right now. Um, or like, uh, like Rhea just mentioned, like, oh, I know who Susan Collins is. I had no idea how we were going to get her out. Um, so we're kind of giving them the solution to maybe problems that they are aware of, but otherwise, um, but otherwise they don't know they don't know about them also a lot of people reach out to us and they're like i know about this candidate that's running in my district can you profile them um so that's happened many times um for example kita haynes came from my roommate sammy who went to school in nashville she um went to vanderbilt and she's been so excited about kita for a while and bonka and i didn't know about her because um, we can't know about everybody running for every race across the country. But as soon as we read her story that she was incarcerated for a crime that she didn't commit, that she's a lawyer, that she's running in TN5, um, we were so excited to profile her that we just pushed her up the list. Um, so we do get a lot of our um, content ideas come in from, from uh, people that are in our network. And just kind of adding on, I guess, to like this conversation about how Gen Z and millennials have various perspectives across the spectrum and you guys are kind of just focusing on general ideas that uh, Gen Z and millennials support. Um, I see that a lot of the, like, I think all the probably of your candidates that you are um, advertising are Democratic candidates. And I was just wondering, have you ever heard any feedback about Republican candidates or, um, you know, anything about kind of supporting different viewpoints and what your guys' like thoughts are on that? From what we've seen, we're not going to profile a Republican just to profile a Republican. I think we live in a time of both sidesism, and it's just not what the data shows. I mean, if the data showed that there was a Republican who the majority of millennials agreed with and went with millennial values, yeah, we'll, we'll profile them. I haven't seen that Republican yet. We don't profile candidates because of we think all millennials think the same way. But we profile candidates because we know that in general, most millennials support specific policies and specific ideas about 
society and the country they want to live in. And so I think that that's why so far we have only profiled Democrats because we haven't found Republican candidates who we feel align with what the data shows as most millennials agree with. And if there are any listeners out there who have ideas for us of Republican candidates who are um, in a race where they are defending some value that we're, we should be um, looking towards, please reach out to us, team at 1510.com. Um, that's really important to us. I think that this is generally um, what 1510 is about and what millennials and now Gen Zers are showing is that like we really care about values. We're not attaching ourselves to a name. Um, we're not attaching ourselves to politicians who are career politicians for the sake of being career politicians. We care about values and getting our voices heard. Um, and that's what's been so inspiring to watch and be a part of with 1510. Um, and that, that's what we really care about doing. I feel like it can be, well, so, um, you know, Madison uh, Cawthorn, who's running for Congress in North Carolina, um, he, if elected, would be like, I think the first Generation Z uh, member of Congress. And so how do you kind of, you know, take that on? Because um, although he's quite, like, he leans strongly to the right and may not align with, um, like, a lot of the progressive value, values that, like, younger people do, um, hold, he also does have a larger younger base backing because of his age and the fact that he, um, he vested um, or like he defeated um, someone who was, I think, in his, in their 60s um, for the primaries um, for that con congressional race. Like, how do you take that on? It's, I feel like that's kind of, you know, like uh, a more complex issue. And as we see, like in the next few years, more and more people from Generation Z will be running um, in the next, not few years, but like a uh, decade or so. So that was the candidate I was referring to earlier when I said that we were about to send our first millennial Republican to Congress, most likely. Um, and I, it's a fair point. It's a really, really good point. And I think it's important to recognize we've profiled very old candidates. It's age isn't the specification. And I think that if anything, the fact that it's a Republican millennial who's going to be the first millennial going to Congress shows that it's not about, not every millennial is the same. And so to profile him just because he's a millennial would be the same thing as profiling a candidate who didn't agree with millennial values as we have discussed that are like, we've seen are trending just because they were a Democrat. Um, I'm not, we're not going to do that. We're not going to profile candidates who go against what we've seen our progressive values and general millennial support or are strategic to achieving those goals in Congress um, just because they're a Democrat. We wouldn't do that. And so, like, what, like, we're, okay, I'm not gonna say this, but there are certain Democrats we would just never profile because of that very fact. Um, and likewise, we're not going to profile a Republican candidate just because he's the one millennial, or he's not the one, but he represents minority opinion among millennials. Because it's just, we don't all agree with everyone in our generation, and that is true. And that isn't our mission. Our mission is to empower most millennials to support candidates, to support the views that most millennials do believe in, if that makes sense. Yeah, if you could talk a little bit, I guess, about your process of collecting data. I think that's that would be super interesting to hear about um, how you figure out which topics are trending at a certain time or how that leads to certain candidates you pick. 
I'll leave Blanca to discuss how we collect the um, finance data. Um, but in terms of how right now we've been structuring who's up in the lineup at any specific time, especially right now um, with primaries happening across the country, um, right. that's also been really important and crucial um, in our scheduling and how we decide kind of who are we profiling when um, and when can candidates really use the push and the money um, and the donors and the publicity. So that's, that's kind of on the scheduling end. Um, and in terms of collecting information about them and about their policies, um, and about their background. So we're, we don't get in touch with the campaigns. We don't, we don't, we're, we don't work with any PR on their side. Um, this is totally independent. So we're looking at if they've, if they're, if they're an incumbent or if they've, um, or what their background is, um, professionally or politically before, what bills have they brought to the table? What have they supported in the past? What have they spoken publicly about? Um, that's really important to us if they have a record to talk about their record. And if they haven't, um, we do our best to kind of dig to see what they're saying they plan on supporting, what their platform uh, promises are, what their platform policies are, um, and that, and we try to give information, kind of give a full picture also beyond their political life, kind of their background um, as a child, their childhood, their familial life, kind of give them an eye into, into who these people are beyond a politician. I will get into the numbers and I will also get into something that I think you were also trying to ask, which was the values that I've discussed, the progressive values, which are kind of the cornerstone. Yeah, that'd be mostly on research from Pew Research, which has done extensive analysis of millennial and Gen Z and other generational um, viewpoints on different issues. So political scientists will do polls. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been called for one, but they happen. You get a robocall. Someone's like, well, you answer these questions. Um, and so that is what we've based that those um, principles on. Regarding the money, we get it all from the FEC um, database online. So June 30th was an FEC filing deadline um, and all the campaigns filed their reports. So we're gonna have new numbers next week. That'll be great. Um, but those happen quarterly. The maximum an individual can give is 2,800 per like cycle per election. In, so it's 5,600 per cycle because there's a primary and a general. And a PAC, which is a political action committee, can give 5,000 and then 10,000 because of the same double counting. And you can give that amount to a PAC as well as an individual. So we kind of also include those rules of the road in our newsletter because we don't assume that you know that. Um, <laughs> we actually expect that you don't know that. I expect that most people don't know that. So that's how we get the money data. I download it all from the filing and I go through it. When we say the average donation, we're looking at their total raised from individuals and dividing that by the number of individual contributions that they have. So that's how we get the average. We take out the money from PACs. Um, we will never profile a candidate who takes corporate PAC money, ever. Um, and that's really important to us because we want to tell our readers about people-powered campaigns. Um, Especially if we're asking them to then donate one, five, or ten dollars. Um, we, we want their money to count. We want their money to go to campaigns where it's going to make a difference because that's what we're telling them they can do. Um, and that's what we believe. Um, and we want to support candidates who also believe that and also want to give people who are only able to give one, five or ten dollars um, just as much of a voice as somebody who can give more. The sentiments, you know, behind like the organization in terms of um, like having younger people be able to like really make their voice heard and like really make a difference and have people like have candidates that they support 
um, win. Um, how does that kind of translate to a more national and a more broader scale? Because um, obviously, um, the like premise behind giving smaller donations is that it's a stand against like corporate PACs and like super PACs and like large donations and things like that and how they kind of skew against POC and skew against women and younger people. But, um, you know, like what, you know, how does 1510 kind of like translate that in terms of like national policy and campaign finance reform? I think that's why I really strongly believe that if we can show campaigns and candidates that they don't need the big money, then they won't go after it. It's already becoming pretty toxic. That's why you have somebody like Elizabeth Warren saying, I'm not going to do fundraisers anymore. And that's because it's been shown. And you need to prove to campaigns that they can raise the money they need in order to operate in this way. You're not gonna have people who have to run for office and senators who have to start raising money the day after they're elected, which by the way means they have six years to raise the money they need to run again. Um, you're not gonna have them passing that legislation unless they have another viable way of funding their campaigns. So that's key. Citizens United is really, really complicated and really, really unfortunate. And Citizens United is an incredible PAC that raises money for candidates who don't take corporate PAC money, basically. Um, and Citizens United says that corporations are people and can give it unlimited amounts. So, cause it's free speech. There's different ways. It's very hard to regulate giving because it is a free speech issue. The idea that the courts have said it a lot that you giving money is you saying something, it's your support. That is a long path to changing that. The courts did not always think that um, corporations could. They said that because political giving can actually influence the outcomes of elections and policies, there are limits, which is why there are limits. And there have been a lot of attempts at finance, campaign finance reform, McCain Feingold, for example. Um, the court issue is a battle that people are fighting. It's not a totally agreed upon idea. And a lot of people disagree with the idea that corporations are quote unquote people and have free speech rights. And I think, it, I hope it will be litigated. I, I, I mean, most of these issues will be. But I think that until that changes, a great way that we can try to curb the issues and the corruption that comes from that is by just honestly beating them at their own game showing that we can have that influence at all 138 million of us could give a ton of money and suck it i mean we'll win <laughs> so that's the national that's the big picture of 1510 that's what we're trying to say is that there are over a hundred million of us so even if we only gave one five or ten dollars that is a huge amount of money and when it comes to these local elections that is a huge amount of money um, these aren't presidential races. These are much more local candidates, but they, that's, that's actually how policy gets changed from the ground. Those are the policies that go for, go through first. We saw what happened, um, in Tennessee, um, was that last week or two weeks ago, um, with the anti-abortion legislation that went through, like, we need people in local politics who are going to fight for what we believe in. And we actually can make a difference with the money. That's the whole premise. And that's, that's what we can do. Um, in our small way to overcome Citizens United for the, for the time being. That's all for today, friends. 
I'm editor Sarita Atabala signing off for all of us at Next Generation Politics. Please check out our website at www.nextgenpolitics.org to find out more about our work. And please recommend us to your civic-minded friends or to your friends you'd like to become more civic-minded. Thanks for listening.